You're listening to The J-Curve, a podcast about founders and funders that redefine the future of Latin America in tech with me, Olga Maslikova. For our first episode today, I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Caps, founder and CEO at Vitalk, Sao Paulo's-based digital health startup that destigmatizes mental health and makes mental health care accessible to most of the population in Brazil. Vitalk has recently raised 5 million Series A from the likes of Vox Capital, Valor Capital, Good Water Capital, and Green Rock. Michael? So happy to have you as my first guest. As you know, I'm a huge believer in your mission to make mental health services affordable and accessible for the most of the population in Brazil. Welcome to the J-Curve. Oh, thank you, Olga. It really is a pleasure to be here. Great. Thanks so much for being here. I'd love to start with some history and context, though. What's the story behind you taking leave of absence from Harvard and moving to Brazil to become a cowboy and live on a farm? And how did that impact you as an entrepreneur and ultimately led to the founding moment for Vital? Yeah, no, it's a little bit of a crazy story, but that's exactly it. I was uh, in my uh, junior year uh, of college and uh, you know how studying at an Ivy League can be, right? I mean, high stress, high competitive environment. And everyone, all my friends were going into Wall Street, into consulting. And I, I, I had that, you know, entrepreneur spirit within, but I didn't have the courage uh, to, to actually do it right out of college. And so I thought, man, I, you know, I was almost having kind of a, 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 a mental breakdown, nervous breakdown. And for some reason, the only good idea that came to mind at that time was I have to leave civilization. I have to do something completely different. I can't, I can't be influenced by these people. I need to... I need to do something. I need to do something that was always a dream of mine, right? Which was sort of uh, to become a little bit more manly and learn how to, you know, uh, go into the go into nature and how to how to you know uh, learn all these little life skills. And so, a friend of my friend's uh, uncle or something like this is a big farm owner in Brazil. And so I went there. I just got onto a plane, took maybe like a couple of weeks of basic Portuguese classes, and I lived uh, as a as a as a cattle rancher basically out in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere, no internet, no um, cell phone, no one knew where I was, what I was doing. And I did that for a couple of months, four or five months. I didn't speak Portuguese. I obviously certainly didn't know how to ride on a, on a horse. I couldn't get on the horse. Fell off the horse multiple times. It was, it was pretty insane. But I think I came out of that. I had so much time to think. Um, calm myself down, learn how to meditate, learn how to speak Portuguese, fell in love with Brazil. And I sort of, you know, in my last year of college began to see, wow, there's a really great opportunity here. Uh, why, why do I need to necessarily stay in the, in the United States or in Canada? I mean, I obviously love the countries, but look, Brazil has so many opportunities, huge unmet needs, uh, a really inviting and diverse culture, right? Because the gauchos are very, you know, the cowboys are very different than the guys who live in the cities, who live in the Amazon. And to me, it just seemed like, you know, I could be, I could make a big, big difference. I could be someone, you know, unique. And I thought basically, man, if I could do four months uh, in, the in the middle of nowhere, you know, like uh, uh, in the swamps with piranhas and anacondas and this, how hard can it be to be an entrepreneur? I think I have the resilience to <laughs> be an entrepreneur in emerging markets. So uh, that's, that's how we kind of started Vitalk and focused in an area that I'm passionate about, which, you know, was really the reason that I, I came there, which had to do with health and wellness and, and eventually in the area of, of mental health care and making it more accessible. So resilience, I think, uh, is, the, is the key 
lucky thing to be able to, you know, survive as an entrepreneur in Latin America. And I'm totally with you on uh, the tracks in this in Brazil. Mental health, though, is a very tough area to be in the country. It's still surrounded by stigma. A lot of people still anxious to talk about that, not even between each other, but on the workplace. So how do you, why do you think now is the right time to start Talk? Why do you think the market is ready for uh, mental health startup? Yeah, no, it's a very, very good question. Very good pro- provocation. We are obviously uh, battling, you know, uh, swimming upstream. But, you know, this mental health care issue, um, you know, uh, existed long before COVID, right? A lot of people say, oh, mental health just came up because of this, of this, uh, of this issue. But Brazil, believe it or not, uh, is actually one of the, the worst countries in the world in terms of uh, mental health uh, issues, right? The, the World Health Organization says that they're number one in, in prevalence of anxiety, number five in terms of depression. Um, and uh, it's very contrary to what mo- many people think of Brazil because they think, you know, beaches and everyone's happy and samba. But sort of underneath this very glittery, beautiful, uh, you know, appeal, there's a much deeper, darker secret, which is the fact that the country is incredibly unequal, uh, incredibly violent, unfortunately, a lot of instability, all these kind of factors which lead to high rates of anxiety, uh, high rates of depression, uh, high rates of burnout and insomnia and substance use and the, the kinds of things that you oftentimes see in some areas in the United States. You have some marginalized communities in the United States. You know, think about the bottom 10, 15 percent of the U.S. that live in in very difficult situations. Now multiply that for 90 percent of the country. Right. So it's a country that that has these problems. And unfortunately, it's not as rich as a developed country. So uh, so the number of mental health care professionals that are there just don't exist. They can't take care of all these issues. They can't address a lot of a lot of these issues. And so as a result, the demand is there. Then COVID comes, right? This, this, this crisis exacerbates things even more, you know, throws more gasoline into the fire in terms of, you know, economic uncertainty and, and all the, the stress and, and, and trauma that happens with that. Uh, but there, nothing changes in terms of the resources. So how do you combat this problem? You have to think differently. Uh, you can't take the same approach that would work in the United States. You have to try to use something that's much more scalable, much more digital, something that you can actually reach these people. Because even if you train, you know, you, you won't be able to have a num- number of psychologists, even if you pay them well, which is another issue <laughs> in itself, you simply won't be able to um, reach the demand if you don't, you know, think outside of the box. And I think that's sort of uh, what we try to do, you know, really um, try to create a paradigm shift in how people think about mental health care um, and find ways to make it scalable. The good thing is there's been a cultural shift because of, of coronavirus. People are starting to understand it. Our customers, which are corporations and, and, and smaller companies, are starting to understand the importance of that. They're finally making those connections, something that maybe in the United States 10 or 15 years ago was already kind of obvious. And now there's a lot more funding, a lot more money coming in as well. So it's all the, all the, all the positive ingredients together where we can really you know, make, a, make a dent in this problem. So. I really like that as long term you see uh, Vitalk as a you know solution for mental health issues for majority of population. But at the same time, you start with uh, employers, you start with enterprise, and which I what I found uh, specifically interesting is um, your customer base includes high growth tech companies, including GenePass. And how do you think about that? Given that it's high growth, high stress environment, tech ecosystem, uh, a lot of people were educated outside of the U.S. and potentially understand the uh, costs 
of uh, mental health breakdown on the enterprise. Does that help at all for you to scale your business at this point and get you closer to the end game? Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's exactly it. I think what what ends up happening is. Brazil, majority of the employed uh, population of Brazil um, are working in smaller companies, right? And so, uh, you know, 80% of the population are in companies that have, you know, less than 100, less than 500 people, right? I mean, uh, oftentimes when we think about big corporations, Fortune 500, you obviously have those in Brazil. But many of those are multinationals, and many of those guys actually ha- already have structures and tools and international vendors. But most of the population is either uh, informally employed, right? So they're either working, you know, uh, or they're working in small companies and small service industries. And there's c- certain types of industries, like like you mentioned, that uh, you know, tech startups, which is you know, the, the the ecosystem is booming. Those are ones that are probably most uh, affected, right? Um, and so, especially services industries that are that are high paced, uh, that have a lot of interaction with human beings, collaborative kind of uh, environments like tech startups, law firms, marketing firms, you know, these are the guys who are most suffering and they just don't have the tools. There's no one who's, who's you know, they don't have it internally. They can't build out, um, you know, mental health care uh, tools and care for their employees internally. And th- they don't have external vendors. And I think that's where we come in. Um, and we see, uh, we see our work with these companies. Uh, you know, we've seen a, a clear cultural shift. People are starting to understand that um, not taking care of mental health care is a pure economic cost for the company, right? I mean, they, they're really, really starting to see that. They're starting to see the difficulty of retaining talent, uh, the costs uh, of of uh, losing talent, the costs of retaining talent, which is not well, that comes to work and actually doesn't produce and all the problems that they cause, but they're a little bit, um, they're helpless in, some, in a certain way. So, you know, we hope that by building out our digital tools that we're doing at Vitalk, applying our, you know, innovative technologies, we can, we can, you know, provide these tools at scale and help all these companies. And that's step one, right? And once we can help these companies in a more formalized environment, then we can start thinking about, you know, much bigger problems. How do you help the society at large? How do you do these kind of things? And I think I think so that's why I think we're you know what we're doing is is it, we're we're sort of at the right place at the right time. Uh, I'm absolutely I love it in terms of uh, thinking step by steps, understanding what your north star is, but also understanding how to get there and what's the most efficient way to get there. But I want to talk a little bit about your leadership style. What are the most challenging aspects of your role as a CEO of White Talk? And um, how do you think about self-scale as the company grows now that you raise, you know, more capital and uh, you're ready to fuel the growth in the country? Yeah. So, uh, no, it's a very good question. And I guess I can even tell you a little bit about, you know, how, how I think about leadership in the company and sort of how it's been really good to get us to where we are right now, but it, it, it's going to be a challenge moving forward, right? So we've always prided ourselves in our company, you know, being a mental health care company, we care a lot about the mental health care of our employees. I can't, you know, be running a company and, and being a CEO, uh, you know, that's that's selling solutions and, and you know, better work culture and, and you know, uh, psychological security, and then, you know, be a complete hypocrite and not apply that in, in our culture, right? So we've, we've you know, uh, done a lot of things in our company where we put the wellness of the employees employees first. And the reason for that, uh, we we think, is because I believe that in the 21st century, especially in Brazil, your differential oftentimes will come down to creativity, right? Your ability to come up with really unique solutions and resource 
constrained environments. Um, and it's something that I think we've been able to do successfully. Many companies hire us because they really believe in what we're doing. They, you know, they believe in our creative solutions. And I believe that creativity comes around when you have a, what's called a psychologically secure environment where people can take risks, they can, um, you know, have time to think and develop and, and, and things of that nature. And it's also an environment which um, accepts diversity, right? We have a very diverse company. About uh, 70% of our, of our employees are, are female. We have, a, we have a, a large part of our, of our company's employees are from, you know, traditionally underrepresented uh, populations, vulnerable populations uh, that wouldn't traditionally work in tech companies. And that creates for a really interesting culture because you have all, you know, you're awash with new ideas and people really challenging your ways of, of traditionally thinking about things. Because, you know, it's difficult. If I'm, a, I'm a foreign uh, Canadian white guy in Brazil which is a company which is none of that. <laughs> it's Brazilians and, and, and definitely definitely not, not that situation. So you need to be able to be able to bring on these people and retain them. And we have a very, very high uh, employee retention rate. Now, that's what's helped us in the past, right? That's what's helped us to get to our current stage. But now with more funding comes more responsibility. So now we have to put uh, the, the, you know, the foot on the accelerator. And I think my challenge as a, as a CEO will be, how do, can I maintain this, this culture of wellness and you know, transparency and creativity, but also meet the, the high demands of growth, of doubling, tripling, growing five times in, in one year and not sacrificing sacrificing our culture. And I think that's going to be a little bit of the challenge. I think what I'm going to have to do is really, you know, stick to our values, hire the right people, um, you know, uh, create a, a culture of healthy conflict rather than avoidance of conflict. Uh, things which, you know, and, and really prove to the world that you can build an aggressively growing startup that has really good mental health care, right? That's going to be the best example for our clients as well. And one way that I do that, um, you know, uh, is I think really getting people to understand the stakes and the mission. Right. Like I talked about this a little bit before I tell people, guys, if, if we don't do this, no one else will. There's millions of people, an estimated 40 million people suffering from mental health care issues in Brazil. They're, they're suffering, right? And, and sometimes you don't, you, it's just a number, but you have to put a face on it. It could be your daughter. It could be, uh, it could be your colleague. It could be your mother. You know, it could be an, and, and these people need our solution uh, or need the solution that we're trying to build. And so, you know, uh, if you, if we don't get our act together, every day that we waste is every day that thousands, millions of people don't have access to our solutions. And I think that's sort of one way that you can, um, combine a mission-driven culture with one which is also, um, you know, uh, fast-paced. And I think by maintaining that mission close, we set ourselves up to scale, like you said, right? So I can I can delegate more, I can create more autonomy, I can give more autonomy to people. And I hope that those are the ingredients that are going to make us successful <laughs> in the coming months and years. I actually absolutely love two things that you said. First, uh, making sure that everybody understands who is the end customer in mind, in mind and um, whose life you're actually looking forward to improve. Uh, the second thing you said uh, was the psychological safety. And I think Google ran some research and uh, they, they realized that psychological safety is number one factor of creativity and productivity of employee uh, on the workplace place. At the same time, I think psychological safety is very tightly connected to the culture of um, acceptance of failures and mistakes, learning from them and acting on them. And Brazilian culture, as well as the, you know, culture of other emerging markets, you know, Russian Russia is not, is not exclusive from that list. It doesn't treat failure as a learning curve. Still, how you as a leader inspire your people to be their best and take risk and not to worry about downside, given that startup failure is still a taboo in Brazil. And you are, you know, series A 
fast-growing startup company. Yeah, no, definitely a very big challenge, and it has to, and and, and it's something that you probably will see in a lot of emerging countries, a lot, a lot of emerging regions, uh, you know, in Latin America and Eastern Europe and, and things like that. You know, these are countries that have grown up in, in, in decades of volatility, you know, political, economic. And so the new generation of your workers, which are millennials, Gen Z, they've grown up in that environment and they've been taught their whole life to look after stability, right? So become doctors, become lawyers. It's what you've seen a lot in India, right? It was very difficult to create. Uh, I, I think you even told me this anecdote that the CEO uh, of of uh, an Indian company that has to actually call the parents of future employees to assure them that, uh, you know, that, that it's okay, that it's fine for their son and their, their child to go. So, I mean, that's deeply ingrained in the, in the culture. But there's ways to, you know, um, to try to dispel a little bit of that stigma, right? I think at a macro level, I think what Brazil needs and what we're trying to do is you create more role models, right? In the U.S., you have this culture of, of Henry Ford and Steve Jobs, and you have people who you look up to. In Brazil, that's that's starting to take place just in the last couple of years. You're starting to get the, the unicorn founders and the guys who appear on the front, and you, you're starting to see this across all levels. You know, I, I saw last week, uh, you, you see, you know, CEOs of, uh, a co-founder of New Bank is a woman, and she has a child. And people are starting to see, wow, this is possible. This is, you know, there, there's people that I can aspire to too. And it's actually really, really, really cool. So I think I think that's sort of what, what, what needs to happen, um, uh, you know, culturally in the country, see more role models. But then the same thing, you have to see this role model within the company, right? So if you want your company to take risks, you as a CEO have to set that example. So you, you know, and I think part of it is is the ability to show vulnerability, right? And, and sort of take a risk with a company. Uh, most of the things that I do as a CEO, but a lot of them fail. And just showing vulnerability, like, guys, look, I did it. I take responsibility for it. Uh, it didn't work out. What do we learn? What's the postmortem? Um, and let's move on. And if people can see, especially the junior people and even your leadership, wow, CEO is taking risks. C- CEO is making mistakes, but he's learning from them. He's growing. I can do the same kind of thing. You know what I mean? And create this so this culture of vulnerability. Create this culture of celebrating failure, right? Uh, which we we try to which we try to do. We always try to do these postmortems of different tests and things that we we, we do. I think that's kind of how um, you know we we build it up. I think there's an, there's another aspect as well. Um, uh, you know, in 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 my opinion, which also has to do with the type of people that you hire, right? I think um, uh, you can create the best culture and, and the best kind of thing in the world, but we, I think, what we've learned over the last uh, year, year and a half, is that there's just certain profiles of people, right, that are more risk takers and that are not. And you'll know that. It, I mean, obviously, in different functions of a startup, you'll have people that should be a little bit less risk taker, a little bit more conservative. But in some in some profiles, you need someone that is a little bit more of a risk taker and has a little bit of that culture culture you know has come from that comes from that background and i think part of our part of what what we've learned is making those difficult decisions to hire those people sometimes take that risk and and sometimes unfortunately let go of people that don't have the profile and i think by by looking by looking at all those factors i think that's kind of how we can try to change the the situation and these are things that are not just happening at my company it's happening at the hundreds thousands of startups uh, all across brazil the ones that are succeeding are breeding a new generation of entrepreneurs that that, that take more risks that that think more and it just and it's you know a, a, you're going to see it over the next couple of years just expanding uh, uh, further and further. So, yeah, that's a little bit how I'm thinking think about breaking this, this, this taboo. How long do you typically, I'm just fascinating uh, uh, about the, you know, this opportunity for people to act on their mistakes and change or not change and be fired. How long do you typically give it to people, you know, to take a chance and work on their personality 
in accordance with the corporate culture before you let them go? And how does that conversation look like in between you and them? How do you actually do that? No, that's an excellent question. And I, 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 and I think actually probably one of the best marks of a good, a good leader is knowing uh, when to let someone go. I think it's very, very, very uh, complicated. Oftentimes, the people that we actually let go, we knew we could have let, we could have let uh, go within the first three weeks, four weeks, you could, you know, I think we, it's, it's, it's something that we, a decision that we knew and we just, we didn't, weren't brave enough to take that decision early on. And then we, you know, said, ah, oh, let's give them another chance, give them another chance, give them another chance. I think in the past we would wait almost up to six months, you know, oh, let's wait, let's see what happens. Now we're realizing we can't do that. We don't have this privilege. You know, we think that, uh, uh, you can already see signs within the first month. Uh, you know, we provide a feedback uh, at the end of this first first month. If in the second month uh, things are not improving, that you know people are not uh, going the, in the right direction or, or, or whatever, we have another conversation, and then really by month three uh, we can already have that that conversation. Um, I wish I could even do it earlier, uh, but it's difficult also um, when you do that, right? I mean, when you start um, uh, let people go quickly, you're you're, you're very judgmental. You, you you change the company culture as well, so. You have to be subtle in how you do it. You don't just bring people in and then you let them go without the whole company understanding the why behind it. And so I think part of my job as a leader, jointly with my you know uh, uh, people team, um, is to make those uh, decisions clearer to the rest of the company so they understand. Because the worst, worst thing you can do is you can bring someone in, fire them, no one knows why they were fired, and then all of a sudden all the psychological safety goes out the window. Because people start thinking, oh, because this person took a risk and look, they were fired. No, they were they were fired. They were let go because you know A, B, C. There was certain behavior, there's certain value, there's certain thing, and it was a mutual decision, right? And so I think that's sort of what's what's going to happen. And it's going to be difficult as we move from fifty to hundred to however many people um, in our company. So no, good question. I just love that you know transparency is such a big part uh, of the organization, and uh, I totally agree that unless you make it clear and communicate your position, you know, your company's culture and the results are ex- that are expected of every single employee, especially early on. It's just critical to retain great people and, you know, get let go of those that are not necessarily a fit. Now I'd love to move slightly into a different direction. I'd love to talk a little bit about tech entrepreneurship in Brazil. And you already mentioned that you are, you know, white, you're Canadian, you, you moved to the country. Tell me, what do you wish you'd know when you started your career in tech? And what do you think are the critical things to know for anyone building tech business in Brazil? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very good question. I mean, I, I think I made a, a lot of mistakes <laughs> starting starting up this company. Um, you know, a lot of lost uh, a lot of lost time and things like this. I think, and it, it's tough sometimes to separate what what part of it was Brazil and Latin America, what part of it was you know first time entrepreneur, right? <laughs> so uh, it, it, it it sometimes you could make the same mistake in, in in many many other places. I think what a lot of people get wrong a little bit about Brazil is that they're all often scared about all the red tape and the bureaucracy seen it's so difficult. I've and it's honestly never found that to be an issue. I don't think that was where we went wrong. I think what I wish I had known was I wish I had known more people in Brazil. I wish I had built a bigger network. Um, and I wish I had started the company correctly with, um, you know, people that were more aligned with uh, my values, my vision. Uh, potentially, I could have found other people from Harvard or other people uh, to have started the company with. I think I think getting the right people together was was something uh, something that, that's difficult. And I feel we you maybe take that a little bit for granted in the United States because in the United States you have a lot of 
kind of ways to stamp. We have a stamp of approval. Oh, you went to Stanford. Ah, you went to Harvard. Oh, you did this. You don't have that as much in Brazil. So you have to be, I wish I was a little bit better at understanding, um, you know, who are the people that I want to work on uh, with uh, early on? Because I think that that would have done a, a, a kind of a chain reaction where I would have been able to find product market fit faster. I would have been able to raise uh, money with more favorable conditions at better valuations, would have been able to attract better people and so on and so forth. I think I would have, we would have been able to get to where we've gotten earlier uh, if, if we had a little bit of that vision of, of, you know, how to find this talent. I think uh, there's another aspect as well, which I think I would have, um, we should have known a little bit better. People don't realize how isolated Brazil is from the rest of the world. And I think that was something that uh, I didn't. I took for granted. When I came to Brazil, it was almost like coming to, you know, a different country, like, like a different uh, planet. Sorry, I'm obviously a different country, like, like Mars. Um, you know, it's uh, very few people speak English. It's not integrated into the Latin American region. You, Brazil is much closer to the U.S. than it is to neighboring Argentina or Mexico. And I wish that I had maintained more connections with the outside world. I wish I had earlier on treated my company not as a Brazilian company, but as a global company that just happens to be based in Brazil, right? And I wish I had maintained more relationships with my American counterparts, uh, American backers, American funders. I probably should have spent uh, just as much time in Brazil as outside in the United States or in other regions, I think this would have been a big boost. I think I would have had an influx of better ideas, benchmarks, uh, client opportunities, funding opportunities. I think this would have accelerated things a little bit more. I thought I just assumed that, uh, you know, being in Brazil and growing the business there, things naturally would happen. I think they don't. Brazil is very, very isolated in that sense. Um, I mean, at least, you know, seven years ago when we started this thing. But I think that's, that's uh, something that I probably would have, would have done a little bit, uh, a little bit differently. It would have been ex- accelerated my business. But of course, it's, things have changed. Like venture capital and, and tech environment seven years ago, radically different than in the last two years. I mean, you know, size of, of seed and pre-seeds rounds are five to 10 times higher. Number of entrepreneurs, second time, third time entrepreneurs is probably 10, 20 times higher. Amount of money that's coming in 10, 20 times more. So it's a, it's a different setting. So who knows, maybe advice would be different if I were to do it now, as opposed to, you know, five, seven years ago. I think that one thing that would probably not change anytime soon would be the necessity to build thoughtful relationships, not just network, but actually deep relationships in the region. And, um, I'm just too curious about how you actually do that as an outsider, as a someone who is not part of the culture initially, who moves in the country, willing to contribute to the country, build business. But how do you actually do that from scratch, from ground zero? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question. I think building those initial relationships was 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 um, quite challenging, quite difficult. I think um, you know. I think the good thing about Brazil is that it's it's a culture which is very open to foreigners. You know what I mean. So I think this is something something interesting for for better or for worse. You know, there's a certain level of, of trust and 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 people want to work with foreigners, right? It's just different in some in, in other settings, right? And I think and I, so I I think that definitely helped a lot. Uh, you know, and so that I was able to build out my network and 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 meet with other entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we built a pretty strong community around healthcare entrepreneurs. So there were a lot there was people who were you know we we had constant uh, discussions and we were working on things together. But we also as a company had a, you know, Vitalk is a impact focused company. So this, this idea of, you know, make money, but do good, 
while, while, while doing so. And I think we were able to build our network out that way because you have a number of people that, that share the same vision, whether they're tech entrepreneurs, whether they're investors, uh, whether they are um, high net worth individuals. We're able to build our network out uh, sort of uh, uh, that way, which I think uh, was interesting. Um, you know, I had to do a lot of work also to prove myself. So, I mean, uh, any opportunity it was for me to, to speak on a panel, to do a speech. Um, um, uh, you know, for some time I was a writer. I was a, I had a, a small column in the uh, national newspaper on healthcare. I'd published some articles, including there was one where I published side by side with the president of Brazil. It was very, very funny. And so this kind of stuff helped me build a little bit of, 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 of the network. Um, and then naturally, then it becomes sort of, you know, after the first little while, it evolves over time because one person will connect you to another, much like in, in, in another country. And once we had, you know, our company and we had a lot of good people who we trusted uh, on board, uh, naturally they would bring in other talent and you'd be more and more involved. And I think, uh, I think that helped. And while I think that was important, I think, as I, as I said earlier, it would have been good to not uh, cut off too many ties with the outside world. So I think what I, you know, I think if there was a more s- systematic approach of, of, of reaching out and following up and building relationships with, you know, U.S. entrepreneurs and other people in healthcare and try to bring them in. I think this would have been good. And we did do that, right? I think one of the reasons we also succeeded um, early on was we had a lot of support from international development organizations, researchers around the world. We had really good connections with very big universities around the world with the governments of Canada, the US, Germany, things like this. So we we were connected, uh, but I think we could have done it even more. Now things are much more globalized. I feel like, uh, you know, you have a huge pool of talent that's come in that's been educated in the United States um, that you know is doing business with the United States uh, and, and and other countries. I think the scenario has has changed a lot, but uh, at the beginning it was it was a little bit challenging. <laughs> So I had to do a lot. I had to do a lot to try to build my space. I just love how you spend time building your let's call it a brand, building uh, your thought leadership uh, in the healthcare space, and also staying global. I think one of the things that a lot of people pointed out when I uh, asked about what are the uh, um, things that have to be improved in Brazil was the locality of the mindset and just like focus on solving for this specific little problem here and now without having a bigger picture or just without having discouraged to dream bigger and just like hoping to make to grow this bigger and impact not just the lives of your community but the lives of you know maybe the continent or maybe the world um more broadly i absolutely love it one of the things that i really liked about new bank and you already mentioned that so new bank is the bank for brazilian population one of the things they did they leveraged uh high mobile device penetration among brazilian population both in urban areas and rural areas to make you know banking uh accessible for the most of the population and from this respect, the consumer in Brazil and consumer in the U.S. are vastly different. And I'm just wondering, what do you think are some of the other differences that you could see behind high level of smartphone penetration, high level of social uh, media usage, and maybe disproportionately younger prevailing population? What are some of the other things that you see that are different, given that you're a global citizen, you lived in, you know, you're from Russian born, lived in Canada, studied in the U.S., traveled to Africa, from what I can remember. 
what are some of the other things you see are different in Brazil? Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's a good question. Uh, and it's, it's sometimes difficult, like, thinking about it. But I think there's some interesting perspectives. So actually, before even speaking what's, what's what's different, we have to think about some things that are similar, right? Brazil is, if, aside from the language, it's the fact that no, very few people speak uh, English. People are still very, um, very similar, I would say, to the U.S. than even to Mexico or, or other places. I think Brazil has some of the highest, I think it's the second largest market, for instance, for, for pets, for pet ownership. Uh, you know, people love their dogs. <laughs> no idea. Them. Yeah, it's really big. It's, you know, I think the biggest market or well, sadly second biggest market for like beauty, right? For plastic surgery, obviously. So there's a little, there's all these kind of cultural cu- cultural aspects which are uh, which are very, very similar. Uh, and and so, you know, there, there's a lot of behaviors which are, you know, the aspirations as well, Brazilians, I, I would say are, are similar uh, to that of, of Americans. But, but, it, but there is a slightly different behavior online, which I think is interesting. Right. So one you pointed out, Brazilians are very, very social online. You know, they, they spend uh, like I, I don't remember exactly the statistics, but it's something like twice as much as an American would um, on social networks. Right. Um, and, and you can see that people comment. People are very involved. They're very, very open. Um, really, really big digital culture uh, around, you know, digital content. Some of the biggest YouTube channels um, are in Brazil. I think I think, yeah, one of the big I think one of the biggest in the world are, 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 are Brazilian. So a lot of culture and music and, and di- on, online culture and and, um, and I think a very great sense of humor so it's, it's very similar you know it was like meme culture and all that it's very similar in some sense uh, to the United States in in, in that way uh, but I think there's a big gap where they are still st- a gap in terms of trusting uh, online uh, things you know so there's a lower level of trust and this has to do with um, you know issues of fraud and crime and, and and things like that which you know despite the robustness of, of Brazilian financial system and, and, and things of that nature people are still quite quite uh, not trusting so for instance you know Brazilians don't necessarily buy a lot of digital goods right the idea of paying for something that's digital that's not physical that I can touch that I can use uh, it, 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 people don't really understand so it's difficult for instance for a lot of you know purely B2C freemium models uh, to make set uh, to, to grow very quickly in Brazil also the kinds of things that that work are things that are more basic right like for instance iFood and uh, which is kind of like Grubhub grew like crazy because you know people need food or you know uh, music apps work but you know some other kind of more sophisticated behavior change kind of things to help you sleep better and be a better person those are a little bit too like kind of first world problems as I like to like to think about it. people go for like burning priorities and they're willing to pay for that so what so it's new bank right so you know I was so Personally, I, I don't know how many times I had mental breakdowns with a banking system in Brazil. You go, you wait in line, you can't, you know, no one at horrible customer service. They didn't really have to do much <laughs> to innovate. You just have to do, you know, a good, um, a good user experience, a good customer service, and boom, you win the market entirely. So the Brazilian philosophy in that sense is, you know, uh, much more focused on essentials, um, and, and that's sort of what, what works. I think um, probably next couple of years, as things start to work very, very well, you'll start to see more sophisticated kind of movement uh, online. So, you know, population will, that's already used to, for instance, that's been trained to use the phone, for instance, to order food. Now, this may be the first time that they're really using a cell phone in a sophisticated manner. Now you've built the building blocks to do more sophisticated kind of things. Because, hey, if I can pay for food to be delivered and I pay a small fee, 
maybe I can pay for, you know, this app here, which helps me manage my finances, or maybe I can, you know, do this kind of thing, or this, kind, you know, I can start trusting a little bit more in, in what I'm doing. We've seen this big, big, big radical change. And so, and that goes hand in hand with this, with the cell phone permeation, right? Most people own a cell phone rather than a computer, right? They may not have a laptop computer, but they have the cell phone. And more and more cities are offering free Wi-Fi, uh, you know, in the favelas, you have, which are the slums, uh, you know, so-called slums, uh, the government will offer free Wi-Fi. So population is becoming connected. And so then they're getting access to education and healthcare and, and, and financial opportunities. And so uh, it kind of accelerates even further. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next years. I'll be very curious to see it. I just absolutely love that aspect of that the thinking about the necessity to fix the actual things that are broken here and now before we start fixing things that are, you know, good things to have. But I'd like to move to the last part, last section uh, of the podcast, um, which is called Rapid Fire. I'll ask you five short questions and we'll appreciate your immediate responses. Just let's dive right in. The first question would be, when you think about success, who would you say is the first person that comes to mind? Oh, yeah, that's a, that, that's a very difficult question. Um, I would say there's there's an entrepreneur here. Uh, her name is uh, Luisa Trajano. She's, she's the uh, founder CEO of this ginormous company called uh, Magazine Luisa, which is sort of like a Brazilian Amazon, kind of like a, re- a retailer. And, you know, I think she's older right now. Uh, she started the company as like, um, you know, as just a, I think a physical store or something like this. And now it's become this massive company and she's just very very impressive i'm i'm i think you know everything she does uh, she's spoken at some of our, our events before she's a billionaire you know uh and, and imagine in an environment like this she comes probably i think from a i don't remember her history but from a small town you know brazil is still a very macho kind of culture for her to be at the helm of this company but she leads the company in a very human kind of way she knows people's names you know she's really involved in everything you know her work you know impacts millions of people gives tons of tons of, tons of opportunities um and all the decisions she makes are always correct it's very very impressive like um i remember one time she she made i think it was this was this year she said look we're going to create an affirmative action program just to hire uh, people from Afro descent, Afro Brazilian descent, right? Which make Afro Brazilian descent make up sixty five percent of the population and are super underrepresented. And she said, "This is ridiculous. I don't want this in my company." And of course, a big political issue. What are you doing? How are you doing this? Everyone's really angry at her. Well, it's a huge success, and then her share price goes up like like crazy and keeps growing. And so it's like sort of you know doing the right thing, taking sort of. I mean, sort of traditionally, I wouldn't even call this risky, but, it, you know, in Brazil, like po- polemic sort of decisions actually work out. So I think, you know, she's more a traditional uh, entrepreneur who was able to take a little store and make it into a, a major company, which is innovating and acquiring startups like every second week um, and just continues to grow. And everyone looks up to her. So we, yeah, I think that's something I see as a success. I just absolutely love that the first person, first successful company, the person that comes to mind is a female self-made entrepreneur who is also, you know, mission-driven, impact-driven, uh, and think, thinks about improving the diversity ratio in the organization. So I just love it. Um, the second question is, what are the three things 
the founders should not be doing while fundraising. I'd love to, I'd love you to share your wisdom as someone who just, you know, came through all circles of hell over the course of your Series A fundraising. Yeah, no, this is, uh, and it's funny because I, I, people asked me this uh, last week, actually, or two weeks ago. So, okay, first thing for sure is don't fundraise only when you need to fundraise, right? It's, it's obvious. I think this is probably, everyone will tell you this, but I mean, I really felt it. If I had started the fundraising relationships way in advance, building the relationships with the top funds, letting them know what's going on, giving them monthly or, or quarterly updates, it would have been a lot easier. You know what I mean? They would have tracked it. They would have already made their decision. And it wasn't, you know, speed dating. Um, and I think, you know, maybe in the United States, you can, you know, if, if your company is doing great and there's a lot of competition, you know, there's a lot more money now, you can fundraise really, really quickly. Uh, and so you'll come in there and you'll say, this is my pitch, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, uh, VCs will, will fight for you. This doesn't happen so much in Brazil. Even though there's money coming in, that money isn't necessarily entering at Series A stage or at pre-seed stage. It may be entering to late stage companies. And so I wish that if I had built those relationships before, if I had actually spent the, you know, all my time doing that, I, it would have been a lot faster. What else? I guess second thing is not limited my fundraising just to Brazil. I spent a lot of time looking just into, uh, you know, Brazilian fundraising, the Brazilian funds, because it's easy, because it's a thing that comes in and you think, oh, it's easy because there's money here and there's a lot of funds and things like this. I don't know. I think I should have really, it goes back to my last point of building more connections externally. I was surprised. We, we did actually get some international investors to come in and the decision process was so much faster. There's so much more professional. Um, you know, I should have recognized that, you know, there's a trend of money coming into Brazil, uh, could have piggybacked off that trend and closed much faster. So I think, I think, I think stop look again, stop being isolated in, my, in our little environment and look, open your eyes, look, look abroad. And I guess the other thing is, this is maybe more of a personal thing, but, um, that I'm learning how to do a little bit better, especially not just for fundraising, but for um, my interactions with my board and with my, you know, C-levels. It's, you know, all about communication. So uh, know your numbers really well. <laughs> know them like the back of your hand. Uh, and tell a consistent story, right? Don't be jumping all over the place. Obviously, there's a time and a place for passion, for emotion. But as the company grows and as it becomes more mature, you have to know your numbers, know what's going on, be very analytical, um, because the second that your story changes or you don't remember a number, uh, it, I think it sends the wrong impression and I think uh, um, uh, lowers trust uh, in you as an, an entrepreneur. And I think, you know, I would, was able to get away with it at earlier stages of fundraising where it wasn't so important. But, you know, especially for Series A and beyond, I think I should have gotten my act together. And so for the next round, <laughs> I'm going to be... So basically, three key it. things would be... Yeah. Um, Take time to build relationships. Do not be transactional. Do not come to people and ask for money when you need money. Second thing is uh, storytelling. Create the fascinating narrative and let people to be able to relate to it. And third, know your metrics. Know the performance uh, of your business and be consistent about what you communicate. Um, yeah, absolutely mm -hmm. love it. Oh, no. The other thing that I missed was just like look outside of your neighborhood. Do not race just in Brazil. Look at other adjacencies yeah. and overlap and interesting with broader community. Um, absolutely love it. The next question. What's been your biggest miss as an entrepreneur and what are some of the key learnings out of that? Yeah, I mean, 
he had so many misses. <laughs> I don't know what wasn't a miss, right? But well, just but pick the one that is just you know strikes you still. I mean, it's it's. I think a lot of entrepreneurs will say this. It's it's an, always an issue of focus and uh, like when you make the decision to focus and and take that leap. Because uh, you know, in, in our case, we had the benefit of having tons of opportunities. Everyone wanting to give us money to do different things, and we could go in multiple different directions. And I think if we had uh, really made this jump and focused earlier and said, look, we want to focus on mental health care and we want to focus on mental health care for, you know, uh, tech companies in Brazil and really identified our customer and really said, look, I don't know if it's going to work, but let's focus on this instead of, you know, splitting our attention between other sort of shiny objects and other opportunities. I think we would have gotten to, uh, to where we are much faster. I think we would have, we would have, we've done that. We would have saved ourselves a lot of headaches of course, you know, it, everything is better looking back. Maybe we, we, if we had focused, we would have broken the company. But, you know, I think uh, more and more it's, it's focusing and learning to say no. Um, and I've really internalized that right now, where in the past I wasn't so much uh, more, more, more difficult to do that. Um, I'm still struggling with the ability to say no to shiny objects because it feels like there's so many opportunities around and you don't want to experience major FOMO of not going after that. I think something that helps, and you mentioned the focus, the second thing mentioned, we, we talked about that before a little bit, The who's the aspiration customer, right? Who are you doing this for? And what are some of the essential steps that you need to do to finally deliver the product to that audience? The other question would be from your entrepreneurial perspective, what are key mistakes investors make when evaluating companies' potential and traction? What are we as the investment community missing out when we talk to entrepreneurs? Well, a lot of the things that I had even sa- said before, right? Like, uh, go, it goes two ways, right? Building relationships with entrepreneurs early uh, and also you know, look outside your vicinity, right? Like, you know, it's not just uh, Silicon Valley or New York or whatever. There's a lot of other opportunities. I think that, I mean, that's, just, that's in general. Uh, but I guess I, one thing that, that I felt in, in the process was, I think, yeah, on uh, sort of VCs that don't know the market, but think they know the market. And so they'll just put you into a box and say, oh, I've seen a business like this. You're like the American equivalent of, you're like the Uber of this. You're the, you know, the, Ameri- the Brazilian equivalent of this company. That's a great exercise. And I understand it's important to use these boxes because, you know, you filter through hundreds, thousands of potential comp- companies. But I think a lot of things fall through the, through the crack. And I think the successful VCs that, that I've seen really sit down, they think about it and they say, is this really a new model? Is this not a new model uh, of business? Because I think, you know, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of people that come in, you talk to them, and then they already make up their mind within the first um, you know, first five minutes, what you are, what you do. Obviously, important importance of the entrepreneur to be good at, you know, expressing, communicating. Story, yeah. But you have to also understand that, uh, you know, you're in, a, in a, you're a new market. It's very volatile. Uh, not all entrepreneurs know exactly how to communicate uh, their idea fully. I think, you know, the VCs that really understand their, their, their market. And I think maybe the VCs that are most well-read and that have seen these benchmarks and have seen more of these things would be, I think, better, better prepared. Because I think many of the people that I spoke to, you know, just live in, in, in their own world. They haven't seen um, so many business models. So when they come to you, they just, you know, they make up their mind very, very quickly. But um, 
Anyway, I guess yeah, that's I agree. the existential struggle, right? Of, I agree. Of A lot of people are trying to anchor you or put you in the bucket just for, you know, easiness or for understanding uh, of what you're building. And I do agree that it tends to be a wrong approach when you talk about the new markets. Although there's a common perception of Brazil being a copycat market, which it is not anymore. But still, people think that majority of tech businesses that are being built in the, com- in the country are the replica of uh, U.S. Uh, startups. My last question to you today would be: What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned while doing business in Brazil? Huh, that's a really good question. I guess it's that uh, you can make money and do good at the same time, right? And I think that's something interesting because I actually, you know, we're looked at as a company and everything like this as a company which is social impact, social impact. And everyone asks me, Ah, Mike, you came here to do social impact to help people. You know, you're so good and everything. When I came to Brazil, I was just interested in you know solving some problems and and making an interesting company. And I didn't realize how doing good and actually providing services that help people you can actually make a lot of money and you can do with, with that. You know, like, uh, look, you know, look what we talked about, Newbank, we talked about iFood. And these guys are, are, are leveling the playing field. They're giving access to services that other people wouldn't have access to. And there's a lot of money to be made helping the, the less fortunate, so to speak, right? I mean, because the, the obvious opportunity is, okay, I'll build a very high-end kind of high luxury kind of item. Cool, great. But there's huge business opportunity in, in helping people and, and in being conscious about it, right? And sometimes taking the long road to sometimes do things that may not pay off in the short run, but in the long run will be very, very helpful. Because when you do good and you measure your impact and you, you, know, you really think about this customer, um, A, you're going to have very little competition because it's tough to do. So people are not going to be able to, to copy you and, and understand that customer and that, that person as well as you do. You're, especially with this new generation, and especially in Brazil, you're able to attract really great talent uh, where, you know, and, and, and steal talent for, you know, from better paid positions and bigger companies because of, of, of the mission and, and, and what you're doing, which is much easier to do in a country like Brazil where you know, a good chunk of the population is middle and, in, and, and lower income. You know, and so I think, you know, you're able to even attract money and resources more and more of, you know, institutional money is going to companies that can show that they have some sort of an ESG aspect to it. The new generation, you know, I have so many, many friends who are now, you know, either managing family offices or managing funds. It's 100% ESG. So you start, so it's something that when I came to Brazil was really counterintuitive. That's totally counterintuitive. We still have like this huge conversation around how you reconcile the necessity to do good, you know, try to protect the environment still and return money to the shareholders. So yeah, it's totally not linear. But Michael, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, schedule went off the roof, but uh, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great day. No, it was great. Thank you so much, Olga. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of The J-Curve. I really enjoyed our conversation with Michael Caps. To learn more about Vitalk, go to vitalk.com.br. And to hear more from us, follow me on Instagram at Olga Maslikova with KH. The J-Curve is also available on iTunes and Spotify to download, review, and subscribe. Thanks for being with me today.